1: When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to post office box 508 508- Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... For another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, October 5th, 2011. We're going to do our light edition today. Tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I'm your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. As a result of it, we've got to do the cleanup work, and the way we do that is by comparing what people are saying. ...to the clear teaching of God's Word using a very specific hermeneutical method. It's called the historical grammatical method. In other words, the grammar and the words and the sentences matter. The genre of the uh, of the biblical book matters. And uh, the history and the context of the historical setting that it was uh, originally delivered in... ...and who it was delivered to matters in your understanding of that. And when you do that... Uh, you apply faithfully the historical grammatical method. You're going to come to a faithful reading of the biblical text, the way it, and believe the things that the Holy Spirit intended for you to believe. You're going to believe the message that the Holy Spirit intended you to believe. Well, at least you'll know what it believes. Uh, whether or not you uh, bend the knee, repent of your false doctrine, and believe it, well, that's a different story. It's anyway. So uh, what we didn't get to do here is uh, we we kind of cut off. Uh, we didn't get to play lecture number four of uh, Dr. Daniel Van Voorhis' Christianity in America. And so this is going to be lecture number four. I'm going to put this in the mix this week. Next week, hopefully, we'll get back to Dr. Rosenblatt's uh, uh, lectures on uh, uh, Luther's commentary on the uh, Epistle to the Galatians. But the name of uh, Dr. Daniel Van Voorhis' lecture here is entitled The Rise of Fundamentalism. The Rise of Fundamentalism. And this is a fascinating lecture and well worth uh paying attention to it and uh noting uh the things that Dr. Van uh, Dr. Van Voorhis mentions here. Now you might not agree with everything he said, um, but uh you know, at least you're hearing a different historical point of view and uh and you know you'll kinda of work out from there. But anyway, here is uh Dr. Daniel Van Voorhis and his lecture from Christianity America entitled The Rise of Fundamentalism.
0: Okay, so today is called uh, The Rise of Fundamentalism. Um, so we're going we're gonna to look at that uh, and we'll get to the handout in just a minute. Now, if you have perhaps perceived just a little bit of disdain in my voice when talking about American Christianity, you are correct to think that I am not necessarily a fan of American Christianity. Uh, this, this what I've called a peculiar and eccentric brand of Protestantism. And Now, as a Lutheran, I'm not concerned that someone might suggest that my presuppositions regarding the historic faith have colored my view of the American church. Yet I will stand by my claim as a history professor that I'm in fact just calling them as I see them. You may think that I'm wrong that my claims that the background of pietism, puritanism, and individualism has been an unfortunate departure in the history of Christianity. But even if you don't think that's unfortunate, if you think puritanism and pietism and, and this is a good thing, you have to at least admit it's there. And then we can discuss whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm saying it's a departure from historic Christianity and it's a bad thing. But we're going to press on uh, to today's final presentation of the first half of my series on American Christianity as we examine the end of the 19th century and the growth of the evangelical empire. Now, in American history, just a, a quick aside: we refer to this period, the period that we're talking today, as the the Gilded Age. That's that. Sometimes you may be familiar with that. It was a term made famous uh, by Mark Twain and Charles Dudley Warner. They wrote a book called The Gilded Age. It's the only age in American history that Americans refer to with a sort of um, with a, a name that's sort of making fun. Uh, it was uh, it was rampant with uh, economic uh, disasters, two big ones in the eighteen seventies and eighteen nineties. Uh, all sorts of political um, uh, misdeeds and the like. Um, so we're going to uh, we're going to look at this age, the Gilded Age, the late nineteenth century. Now, if it's helpful for you, helpful for you, after the initial talk. On the Puritans, I'm trying to set up in your brain the sort of the timeline here, and you've got a little bit on that handout, um, which which you can look at. After the initial talk on the Puritans in the early 1600s, we've been looking. Um, if you want to think about what we've been looking at, you can think about the major wars in American history. Okay, so the first one was about the First Great Awakening right before the War of American Independence. And then the Second Great Awakening right after the War of American Independence. And then today we're talking about the time right after the Civil War up until World War I. So if that helps you at all, sort of in your mind, place where we are right now. We're between the Civil War and World War I, uh, this so-called uh, Gilded Age. Not sure if it is helpful, but it, but it might be. As always, uh, so I can be as clear as possible, I've given you an outline, but I also want to um, (coughs) make sure that we stay on track so that if any of us get lost, and it will probably be me, uh, we we can zone back on on what the purpose of today's talk is. And it's got four parts, four brief parts. Number one, we always want to remember the end goal, why we're here, why we're talking about. This isn't just an exercise in me talking about history. There's a purpose to all this and why we're doing it at Faith Lutheran Church. Number two, we have to ask certain questions. Number three, and this is tricky today, we have to define our terms. And we've got some tricky terms to deal with, but I'll I'll do my best to be uh, simple Uh, but also faithful. And then we want to lay out the narrative just a little bit. So, number one, the end goal. Where are we going? How did we get here? What is modern American evangelicalism? For some of us here in this room, it's because uh, we're baffled or confused by, if not angry with, the, the Calvary chapels. And the saddlebacks of the world—that's that, what has brought a number of us here. We, we look at these churches and we say, "If you're an outsider like myself, or, or maybe you've been to these churches, or maybe you've been in LCMS your whole life, and you just see what's happening, and you think that's that's really curious." Well, that's kind of what we're doing here. We're saying, "The the, the standard American church, Protestant church—how how did it become this?" And that's the end goal. That's where we're heading. And we're getting closer with it today. So hopefully you've seen little glimpses of the modern church. I can't give you a straight answer as to exactly how we got here. But what I'm hoping to do is show you past events and past movements to tell you um, to make maybe the present seem more understandable. So as we looked at Pietists, Puritans, the Great Awakening, that second Great Awakening, we can say, hey, that looks like such and such fellowship. Or such and such community church. And, and that's okay if you do that. Because there are certainly uh, connections. Today we have basically one question to ask. And that is simple. Well, actually it's really hard, but it's simple to say. To ask the question. It's just hard to answer it. That is, what is a fundamentalist? And should we be scared of them? Simple Question. Kind of a difficult answer, but I'll do my best. Uh, as I, I said, we're going to look at, at this, this, this time period, the Gilded Age, where you have to deal with fundamentalism. Fundamentalism is such a part of American culture and politics, and it's so intertwined with everything, that if you don't at least give uh, a, a, an attempt at understanding what fundamentalism is, uh, you can't really understand uh, American history or, or certainly American church history. So we need to define the term fundamentalist. And to do so, I think what we're going to need to do is we're going to need to define fundamentalist as opposed to uh, perhaps two other groups. We're going to look at the fundamentalist. We're going to look at the theological liberal. And then we're going to look at the atheist. So if you look at that sheet I have for you on the back side, I've got all those names and little dots and the like, and I'll I'll try and explain uh, what exactly that business means. But nevertheless, uh, that's how we're going to understand the fundamentalist. We're going to understand the fundamentalist next to the theological liberal and the atheist. And I think if we're being honest with ourselves, um, we might say that there's another group that I have below that called the immigrant traditionalist. Guess who fits there? Uh, but that, that's maybe the only other category. And, and you can say, oh, you're oversimplifying or, or, or what have you. But I think this is the most faithful way of looking at late 19th century, early 20th century Christianity. We have fundamentalists. We have theological liberals. Uh, we have atheists. And I would say the last two groups are not Christian. Uh, and then uh, we have a, a few outliers, and, and to some extent, luckily, happily, uh, churches such as the LCMS uh, are indeed that. Now, our story starts in about 1875, and this really peculiar, sorry to keep using the word, this, this very interesting uh, gathering called the Niagara Bible Conference, The Niagara Bible Conference in uh, 1876 is going to send shockwaves throughout Britain and throughout the United States that are going to be felt all the way up to today. You could say that the best-selling, well, you would say the best-selling book of the 1970s. Does anyone want to guess what was the best-selling book in the 1970s? Hey, you guys are smart. Yeah, The Late Great Planet Earth. Have you read that? Don't. Yeah, no, stay away. Uh, And I'm not being mean, I'm just being honest. Don't read that. Um, In the 1990s, (laughs) Rod approves. Uh, In the 1990s, do you want to guess what the best-selling series was? Left Behind. Behind. Have you read that? Good, 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 church. Yeah, don't, don't. And that's just because it's bad literature, okay? I don't even care. But is that just not well written? And don't see the movie. Uh, with Kurt Cameron. I don't know anyone that would go on opening weekend to see that no, it's, I was, But I had to see what it was all about. Now, before we go a little bit further, because you're going you're gonna to say, oh, you're being, you're being snide, you're being rude towards these other groups. I want to make something very clear. We're having a, well, maybe I'm just having a, a good time here. But someone's going to say, can't we just all be together? Isn't, can't we just have community? Can't we just ignore differences and, and don't make fun of, of uh, the late great planet Earth or these well-meaning Tim LaHayes and the like? And I say, no. No. And, and I, I'm not just joking here. No, I'm not going to leave them alone. And I'm sorry. And, and let me just explain something that's perhaps a little different about Protestant Christianity as opposed to Rome as opposed to the Eastern Orthodox churches. And here's a very, it has to do with this question. And if you ask yourself this question, it's very telling. What is worse? Heresy or schism? What's worse? Heresy or schism? For the church in Rome, schism is the worst thing possible. For the emerging church, which we'll get to later, schism is the worst thing possible. For Protestants and historic Christianity going all the way back to the very first confessions, heresy has been much more dangerous than schism. That's why we have confessions. That's why we have creeds all the way back to the early church. So it's an important question to ask. Now, heresy and schism are both bad things. And we wish and we hope that we don't have either. But which is worse? Heresy. At least that's been the historic Christian answer. This is in many ways the story of fundamentalists to the present day. And and the modern American church. We can get a little too exclusive. And then we can get a little bit too inclusive. Inclusive. We can get too exclusive and then too inclusive. And it has to do with our, I think, our misunderstanding um, of, of heresy and schism. Uh, we'll, we'll get to Calvary Chapel later, and, and we're, we're going to have to get to Calvary Chapel. And we're going to get to Saddleback. And I'm, I'm, I think there are reasons I couldn't tell you why Southern California is the hotbed of, of such uh, peculiar churches. Um, but nevertheless, Calvary Chapel is a good example of this. When Calvary Chapel started, it was the hippie church. It was the church for the outsider. It was inclusive. And then what's happened to a church body like that over time? You smoke. You drink. You said a naughty word. You watch Dexter... You watch the Sopranos? Oh, bop, 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 All right, well, now I've got to go somewhere else. Uh, and this is just calling it as I see it. It went from inclusive to exclusive. And we see that throughout, like an accordion playing, uh, or at least that's what I'm doing with my hands. That's what we see throughout the history of American church. Of the American church. Okay. Now, if you look at your timeline, I'm not going to to kill you with the names and the dates, but I just want to give you a little picture of some of the real important things for American Christianity. As I mentioned, the Niagara Bible Conference. What was significant about the Niagara Bible Conference? Well, at the Niagara Bible Conference, we have a number of Americans and some British folk who are getting together for... Fellowship for theological discussion. Because there are some real problems in the church. There are some real problems with higher criticism. There are some real people who are attacking the historicity of the Gospels. They're attacking the atonement of Christ. These things on which the church stands or falls, they're being attacked. Especially from places like Germany. And so, these well-meaning people come together at the Niagara Bible Conference. And as I said, this is going to have shockwaves. This is going to send shockwaves uh, throughout American Christianity. Because from the Niagara Bible Conference, the particular thoughts of one man from the United Kingdom, these thoughts are going to spread into just about every quote-unquote, evangelical church today. His name I mentioned before, John Nelson Darby. John Nelson Darby is going to have a, a great impact on a gentleman named C.I. Schofield. And as I mentioned before, the Schofield Bible. What was the best-selling Bible in the early 20th century? Schofield Reference Bible. And I, 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 I won't go into it here, but more damage have, has been done by study Bibles. right? Whatever kind of study Bible. We've got the Word of God, and then we've got the footnotes written by a well-meaning heretic. <laughs> or a well-meaning Christian who, who just has their, their bearings uh, not set straight. But at at what happens with the Niagara Bible Conference is we get the ideas of Charles Nelson Darby through C.I. Schofield, and then guess what people we have here? How about D.L. Moody? Are you familiar with Moody? Set up Moody Bible Colleges, training pastors. Who else was was part of this group? How about R.A. Torrey? R.A. Torrey, is anyone familiar with that name? He was the second president and really helped build this really big school, an important school, in Los Angeles. It was called the Bible Institute of Los Angeles. B-I-O-L-A. There you go. Who else was there? James Oliver Buswell. You don't have to know who that is. I had to look him up. (laughs) He was one of the founding, one of the most significant characters in the founding of Wheaton College. All of these major Christian evangelical institutions in America in the early 20th century are set up, are being run, by people coming out of the Niagara Bible Conference, being influenced heavily by Darby and Schofield. And what's the whole thrust of Darby and the Schofield Reference Bible? Premillennial dispensationalism. And if you think I just have some strange fixation with the end times or people teaching on the end times, and it might be Rod's looking, it might be that I have a strange obsession. It's because it's important. It's because that's what's driven. The late great planet Earth was the best-selling book in the 70s. The best-selling series of the 1990s was, was left behind all 10 or 12 or however many versions. This stuff, this stuff has, has infected the church. It is strange, and I'm saying that, uh, and like I said, if I'm sounding angrier today than I have in the past, um, it's, it's because this stuff is dangerous, and this stuff is so peculiar that any history professor or anyone looking at the history of the Christian church would say, my goodness, what's that? What is that? This idea of a thousand years on earth, and, and I won't show you the grid where there's a pre-trib or a post-trib, and there's a, a don't get left behind because some people are going to disappear and their clothes are going to fall on the ground, and the, don't, the car with the rapture sticker. <laughs> we, we can go back so you guys know that. If we go back to uh, Irenaeus and Justin Martyr, uh, those are early church fathers. Uh, we, can, we see them both talk about a, this thousand years on earth. A literal thousand years on earth. But that's about it. Soon Augustine comes along and and he suggests that it it is not a literal thousand years. That the best way of looking at the book of Revelation is not that way. Uh, And so that's been the standard reading uh, by exegetes, by theologians of uh, the book of Revelation. But we're going to get to that in just a second. In 1910, the Northern Presbyterian Church the conservative branch, came out with their five points. Now, I know if if, if you're a Lutheran and you think Presbyterian and five points, you want to run to the door, but not those five points, okay? What five points we're talking about is in response to what's happening with German higher criticism, they said these are the five essential things that all Christians need to agree upon. The inerrancy of the Bible. That word can trip some people up, but the, the Bible does not err. Number two, the virgin birth of Christ. Number three, Christ's substitutionary atonement. Number four, Christ's bodily resurrection. And number five, the reality of Christ's miracles. Now, why do they pick those five things? Because those were the five things that were being attacked. And so the Northern Presbyterian Church is going to try and hold on to some semblance of the historic Christian faith. During the question and answer period, you can ask me, where were the Lutherans? I'll just answer it. They were in St. Louis speaking German to one another. Um, immigrant traditionalists. And, 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 like, and, and George Marsden and others have said, it's, it's sort of happy, uh, a happy uh, you know, set of circumstances that they weren't involved in all of this. Uh, and, and that's one of the reasons why I think sometimes the Lutheran Church is bad at understanding uh, this American uh, evangelicalism. So the Northern Presbyterian Church puts their five points together in 1910. And then in 1915, this is important, two oil men, rich guys, decide that what they're going to do is they are going to put together a um, a set a 12-volume, they're going to pay for a 12-volume set, whereby a number of the leading, some of the leading, a couple of the leading theologians of the day are going to write about all of the fundamentals of the Christian faith. They're going to, uh, the, the, um, these oil men are going to, to use R.A. Tory to help them from Biola and they're going to, to send around these 12 volumes of The Fundamentals to every pastor and seminary student they can find for free. And it's called The Fundamentals. So where do we get the name fundamentalism? From that. So what is a fundamentalist? Well, the answer is easy. It's someone that adheres to the fundamentals. That's their confession of faith. But of course, it's not that easy, is it? Now, I wouldn't recommend reading all 12 volumes of the fundamentals. Um, There's better things you can read. Uh, But uh, in my, my fascination with this, and as part of my job, I have indeed read all of them. And let me tell you something. They aren't that bad. You might go looking through it and say, oh, this is the fundamental. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get them. I'm going to find their... Oh, there's a thing on revivals. I'm going to get them there. It's in the, the 12th volume. This will be good. And uh, even as I was prepping this, I was like, all right, I'll find the good quote here, and that'll... Well, the emphases aren't great, but what does <clears throat> the gentleman writing on revival says? When you have a revival, don't worry about the music. Don't worry about the pastor. Don't worry about the slick hair. Don't worry about the neon signs, what have you. What you need to do is you need to, to preach the law in all of its, 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 all of its sort of force as the hammer of God. And then you need to preach the free gospel whereby sinners are, are saved because of Christ alone. And I'm reading this and I'm thinking, my goodness, this sounds like Walther. And then, of course, the third part they go into, <clears throat> and now that this has happened, you, you are called to be a disciple and you must do this and you must do that. And as Lutherans, we're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're not going to deny that at all. We do not deny that. But that's not where the emphasis is going to be. That's not where the emphasis is going to be. And if you, you say something about fundamentalists and something wrong with that, that's where the emphasis is. But overall, this text, the fundamentals, are not that bad. A couple weeks ago, and we're going to get to that sheet now, with all the confu- all the names on there. And I'm sorry if this is uh, too much, uh, but I'll I'll make it as simple as I can, because what we need to see in America, if we're going to be responsible at all in saying that the the evangelicals or the the Calvary Chapels or the mega church fellowship, what have you, are are erring, are are peculiar, or what have you, you've got to understand where they come from. And now, a few weeks ago. Um, I talked about the, the Enlightenment, the rationalism of the 18th century. And before we do the whole line, I, I may have upset a few people in suggesting that we need not be afraid of the Enlightenment. A lot of Christians are, and postmodernists they are as well. There, was, there were good things about the Enlightenment, and you can go back to that handout or see that video uh, on our website. I'm going to suggest one more thing today. Don't be afraid of the fundamentalists. Don't be afraid of the Enlightenment, and don't be afraid of the fundamentalists. I'm probably not sounding very orthodox. But I'm going to explain myself. So look at that sheet um, where I, I lay out uh, the what I think is the basic outline of Christianity in America. The strange cauldron where we start with pietism and we did that a long time ago and we moved pietism into America and pietism influences Puritanism because all those books in German are being translated into English in the 17th century. So... There, if you want to blame the Lutherans or blame the Pietists. And that Puritanism is going to come over, especially on the Mayflower and the Arbella. And this Puritanism is going to lead to revivalism, which is going to be against rationalism. And then the revivalism is going to lead to the radicalism of Charles Finney. You remember him? The moral influence theory of atonement. Jesus didn't die for your sins. He, he died and lived a good life so that you could be like him and wear a bracelet. Not live strong. Uh, what would Jesus do? It, it's, it's, maybe I'm dating myself. And the radicalism falls in with the romanticism, which was a cultural movement which said, oh, those rationalists always making arguments and making declarative statements. Bah! It's, 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 it's in my heart, right? It's about feelings. <laughs> Okay, well, we certainly see that today. So let's not talk about heresy and doctrine. Let's talk about feelings. And and if we're just having feelings, your feelings are as good as my feelings, and we can't verify each other's feelings. So let's get together in a community and share about our feelings. (laughs) What happened? I don't think it happens anymore. Wait. Okay, that's for later. (laughs) And then I'm going to deal, now today, very quickly, I want to deal with the beginning of the 20th century, and I'm going to suggest that outside of the immigrant traditionalists and a few outliers, there are really three major groups in American Christianity. The fundamentalist, the theological modernist, and the secular atheist. These are categories, you might not like them, you might want to add some, but in terms of the most significant, it's these three. So let's go three to one, and I'll tell you about these groups. With the goal being, how did we get here? And don't be afraid of fundamentalists. First of all is the secular atheist. A basic unbeliever. We can use any term we want to use here. People, we can, people can be very clever when they're defining themselves here. They can say, oh, I'm, I'm not really spiritual. Or I'm an agnostic. That is, I'm not sure. But let's just lay our cards on the table. They're secular atheists. You know who's a great example of that today? Gillette. Uh, you guys know Um He's got a, a book coming out, and I can't remember the title, and you probably you don't need to read it. He can be a funny guy. But in it, he talks about how he knows there's no God. He's going to, to live life to its fullest as a hedonist. And the only people that he really respects are those who try and evangelize him. <laughs> because at least they have the courage of their convictions. And he says, all of these uh, namby-pambys, whatever, no. I am going to tell you I am a secular atheist. I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. And I, and I am right. Uh, but I respect those people who say I'm wrong and I'm going to hell and I better believe this. Or else. He says, I respect those people. That's a good secular atheist. The second group. A theological modernist. There are theological modernists that are theologians from Germany. And from Union Theological Seminary in Princeton. And all sorts of places. Um, but in general, the theological modernist at the, at the popular level is a buffet style believer. Someone with beliefs that are religious, but they want to make sure they're respectable. You don't want to get too carried away with miracles and that kind of stuff. It's very it's very vague. It's a heart thing. It's an ethics thing. It's about community, being spiritual, etc. That's the theological modernist. And we have them today. They just go by different terms. Someone who wants to be respectable, doesn't want to hold to... An inerrant scripture or a, a guy who died and, and really died and really rose on the third day. They want to be upper middle class, respectable. And then finally, we have the fundamentalist. Well, here's the rub with fundamentalism today. Because it's it's easy and it's difficult. Because, yes, it just means the fundamentals. They're following this confession of faith. But When we think fundamentalists, what do we think of? We think of an angry evangelical. We think of Bob Jones. We think of those people... Oh, I can't remember. That's good. You shouldn't... Okay. Uh, We think of the angry people, right? Angry Christians that want to make sure you don't watch this show or that, right? The fundamentalists were the ones that in in the early part of the century, in the late part of the 19th century, were making sure that an amendment passed in America that said you can't drink. They were angry. They could be angry. They could be moralists. But a fundamentalist at its core is someone who is holding on to those fundamentals. And let me tell you why a fundamentalist should not be that scary as opposed to a pietist or a Puritan. Because they were actually fighting people. They weren't fighting boogeymen. The pietist and the Puritan, for the most part, were fighting boogeymen. The fundamentalists at least had the courage of their conviction, theologically, the moral stuff, will, okay, yeah. But at least that's what they were doing. They, they may have been ill-advised to, to fight moral battles with non-Christians, and they, they were. But at least they were fighting something bad. They made declarative statements and said, this is right and that is wrong. And so we should at least say, uh, that's, that's okay. That's, that's something to say. it's, it's not great, but, but at least they were fighting real people. And who are they fighting? They were fighting the best-selling authors of their day. Weren't the Hal, they weren't the Hal Lindseys, they weren't the Tim LaHayes. The best-selling authors, the most famous people, were people like Henry Ward Beecher of the famous Beecher family. What did Beecher preach? The new theology? He said, that old theology, you know, the confessions of faith and the Apostles' Creed, those are like little acorns. But now Christianity has become a mighty oak. And it's, it's really about ethics. So why should we talk about those old acorns? This is a new theology. How about Washington Gladden? You familiar with that guy? He wrote a book called, Who Wrote the Bible? And what's his answer? Whoever's name isn't on the book. <laughs> yeah, that's what He said, all right, who wrote the Bible? Somebody else. And they got it wrong. What about Horace Bushnell? I have no idea if he's related to the guy that came up with the binoculars. But he is related to, the, to Charles Finney. Did Jesus die for your sins? Oh, no, that's ridiculous. He died so that you would, you know, be sad. And say what a what a good guy he would die for, you know he would die. So be good, be good. How about Walter Rauschenbusch? Walter Rauschenbusch and the Social Gospel. He was popular. Did he believe in any sort of substitutionary atonement? Absolutely not. Did he believe in miracles? Uh, that the Bible was trustworthy? That Jesus died for your sins? Nope. Uh, Get out and uh, pick up trash. Get get to the soup kitchen. Bad things? No. Theological things? No. How about Harry Emerson Fosdick? Unfortunately, we have one of his hymns in our hymnal. (laughs) Oh, Lutherans. Um, it's it's not not a bad one he actually wrote something called shall the Fundamentalists win and you're going to have to wait like two months but I'm going to bring to you one of my uh, favorite fellows in the 20th century in in the history of Christianity and he's reformed he's Presbyterian and we don't like them very much right well this was J. Gresham Machen and I don't want to tell his story right now But he has a book called Christianity and Liberalism. Buy it. It's going to be him going against these theological uh, uh, modernists. Are you guys familiar with Russell Conwell? He's the last guy I'll mention. Russell Conwell. He gave the speech that some historians have suggested is the most delivered speech in the history of America. It was his only speech he would go to any college, any church basement, anywhere, and deliver it because it was so popular. It was called Acres of Diamonds. What does Jesus call you to, to be in Acres of Diamonds? Rich. <laughs> Faithful? Believe in His promises? No, be rich. But of course, that whole movement has died, right? We don't have Channel 40 or... So that's what the fundamentalists were fighting. They were fighting against real enemies. But the problem is it degenerated into dispensational fundamentalism. And that's why we we today are, are, well, we're more than hesitant. We think, what's going on here? We can say the initial fundamentalists, thanks for fighting the fight when we were speaking German with each other. But what have you become? Biola, Wheaton, so on and so forth. You become obsessed with premillennial dispensationalism. So much so that there are universities that unless you believe this very peculiar, strange, wrong theory of the end times, you're not welcome. That's a strange thing to make the litmus test of Christianity. Do you believe in these dispensations and then a a tribulation and a rapture and da-da-da-da-da? So why is that connected to fundamentalism? And I'm going to finish with this. <clears throat> it's because they were afraid of the theological modernists. They thought if we take this as, uh, as spiritual and not a literal thousand years, they, they, we, will be, we will not be faithful to the scriptures. They wanted to be so faithful to the scriptures as opposed to those theological modernists that they, they developed a wooden biblical literalism. And so a, a spiritual reading of the apocalypse, probably a correct reading of the apocalypse of, of St. John, uh, is, is, is not, not a good thing. It's also the historical context. The Gilded Age is sort of like the American Victorian Age, where there's a thin veneer of morality covering all sorts of naughtiness. Now, as you heard, Pastor Rohde, there's always been naughtiness. But uh, these people who, this seedy underbelly of crime, lawlessness, etc., we have a, a, an explosion of newspapers and the like. I won't get into that. But it seems like there's more crime and there's more gangsters and the like during the Gilded Age. And so people start running from the world, claiming that they're not of this world and the like in a peculiar way. And then what's going to happen next, where, where is it going to move It's going to move because of urbanization and the the socially disenfranchised towards Pentecostalism. And fundamentalism is going to move towards Pentecostalism. It's going to marry itself to the holiness movements. Think John Wesley. And then it starts to spiral to sort of what it is today. So what is a fundamentalist? Well, historically, they were those that fought the theological liberals and theological modernists. What have they become today? Not really fundamentalists in the historical sense. They've become Christians obsessed with uh, speaking in tongues, with premillennial dispensationalism. They're actually a bit unfaithful to their own tradition, which, while it has its errors, at least is fighting theological liberalism. Today, that kind of of confessional theology, and it is a kind of confessional theology, is being overrun in their churches and some LCMS churches with a faddish, moralistic sectarianism. But the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, the, the birth of the fundamentalists was a good thing in the history of the Christian faith of Christianity in America. It was it spiraling out of control, because of mostly because of what started at the Niagara Bible Conference because of Darby through Schofield. <clears throat> they went their own way. Okay, I, I know I, I'm doing this way too quickly, uh, but I, I just want to give you these little snapshots of what's happening in the church in these particular ages so we can see, of course, our ultimate question, how did we get here? Uh, So what I'd like to do is I'd like to take some questions. Um, I I even skipped some things in my notes, but I I just want to make things as as tight but responsible as possible. So uh, go ahead, and and Jim Lowe's going to walk around with with questions. And uh, if you want to get angry with me for defending fundamentalists, um, I can take it. All right, we've got Mr. Drucker in the back. Dr. Van I have a question on dispensationalism. They're really intense about a literal thousand years. Yeah. Why did they blow off Jesus words this is my body this is my blood for the forgiveness of sins Well because you know, have your sins washed away in baptism clear texts yet the thousand years becomes the uh linchpin for them That's a very good question. That's a very good question. They they have this sort of wooden biblical literalism. Right? This wooden literalism that says, hey, listen, if the Bible says this, that's what we're going to believe. It's got to be that way. But then there are certain texts where even they themselves want to be a little respectable. And they have a sm- slight tradition behind them of saying, don't worry, you don't have to believe it's the body and the blood. Right? They've, got the little, they've got the backgrounds of the Puritans, the Reformed, saying, oh, no, there's a, a responsible way around that. I know that's kind of too much. And also, uh, I'll just say this, it, uh, and I can't speak, I can't get inside their brains and tell you exactly why, but the moralism that comes along, the moralism says, okay, uh, a thousand years, uh, rapture, pre-trib, da-da-da, good, but if we hold to that your sins are forgiven, really like that, you, it, it's going to destroy the moralism. It's going to destroy the, the fabric of, of good living. So we're going to be inconsistent, but it's because we need morals to be strong. That's the best I can do. It's a good question, but it's, um, yeah. How are you doing, Denise?
1: Hey, I understand the Calvary chapels and the church growth, and you because know, I've been in those, but I was hoping you would touch a little bit more on like the Tim Keller missional and the emergent. No, where where absolutely. does that fit? And that's
0: where we're going in part two.
1: Oh you are you going to speak to that
0: yeah yeah we 're not, we're not done yet you 're not that lucky to be finished with me no you i 've got the 20th century i 've got radio i 've got televangelists and i 've got the emerging church and the uh, the mega church and that 's going to make up why on earth have we' been talking about pietists and Puritans and radical revivalists, not just for fun but because that sets the stage for uh, what the onion calls uh, our dumb century. <laughs> Uh, Dan. Yeah. Uh,
1: growing up, it was the Baptists who were the big pre-mill dispensationalist type, and all that. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't have anything to reference in terms of facts on this, but just looking at trends today, right? We talk about church growth and the rest of. And the people on TV, right, Yeah. that that you alluded to in your presentation. I have heard that within sort of the mainstream Baptist church, like the Southern Baptists and such, that they're beginning to shift back and move away from this sort of extreme pre mill dispensationalism.
0: Any thoughts to that? Yes, um, they are. They're leaving that tradition, and they're all sorts of fellows. And I I wish I could, could give you a bibliography right now, but they are... It's, it, they're trying to be able to come a little more respectable. That's sort of the history of the church, right? You want to be a little more middle class, a little more respectable. Uh, and so even places like Biola um, are, are stepping back a little bit and saying, well, oh, yeah. I mean, you have to, but, it, yeah, they're stepping back. They, they are. Um, <clears throat> uh, there's a, a good series, a pretty good series, um, that you can find in, in your Christian bookstore on Amazon.com. Uh, called Five Views On, and it will take various doctrines. Uh, don't read the one on law and gospel. Don't read it. The guy who wrote the part on, on, on Lutheranism, or what, what's he call it, Mo- modified Lutheranism, is Douglas Moo, good scholar on Romans, did a terrible job. That's a disclaimer. But the other ones aren't bad. Uh, at the one on, the, on Revelation, on the millennium, Five Views on the Millennium. That's the name of the book. Little short little sections on on the major views. Yeah, we'll have this um, modified premillennialism, and that is catching on with Southern Baptists, with the Biolas. Uh, it caught on a while back with the Wheatons and the like. So, yeah, they are. That, that's a that's a good uh, uh, assessment. And we've got different study Bibles now, so that can shape us. <clears throat> Charles, up here. Isn't this
1: simply just a uh an outcome of our um, democracy, where, um, follow me, uh,
0: personality-driven. Absolutely. As a consequence, uh, the opposite is like, uh, Muhammad comes by, this is the way, if you don't go this way, I'm going to kill you. Yeah, when it comes to Muhammad, I'm going to leave that to Adam Francisco. Uh, But when it comes to the personality... Who was president between 1921 and 1923? If you don't know, that's probably okay. It was Warren G. Harding. Why was he president? Because he looked like a president. <laughs> was he a good president? No. Um, <clears throat> nevertheless, it, this is important that we are sort of driven by the, the slick hair and the suit. And, the, and we talked about that, but, that. this is part of that tradition. Um, and hey, they've got something to say. They've got their study Bible. They're dynamic. Sure, I'm going to listen to them. Uh, what the American church needs is today is September, August 28th. Yes. If you are watching this on the internet, go to faithcapo.com. Go to sermons. Go to August 28th and hear Pastor Rody And and that's going to be that's a sermon. Hope you were there. Other questions. This is a, uh, like I said, <clears throat> I'm trying to go quickly. I'm going to give you a bibliography because there are some good works on this, but many of them are written by uh, people with a, a, an axe to grind. Um, not that I don't, but, but nevertheless. Um, but there are some very good historians. George Marsden, Mark Knoll, N-O-L, um, Look at these guys. I'm I'm going to take a break. Uh, but when I come back uh, in a few weeks, uh, we're gonna we're gonna finish this series. Actually, we've got a question, and it's from Rod, and so I want to take it. A
1: quick addition: um, the
0: the additions of Christian history or Christian history and biography yes. are really worthwhile. Looking at Absolutely, it. Christian history. Rod, who published those? Well, it's under the banner of Christianity today, but it's still good. Yeah, yeah, uh, anyway. yeah. Christian history, and I, I don't know if they make them anymore, but no, they no,
1: it's it's OP. Okay, the it's, old series is gone.
0: Yeah, the old series, Christian history. Uh, you can get them online. Look around. Uh, that's really good, popular level stuff done by good scholars, good historians. So, Christian history. Uh, magazine. Uh, and like I said, at the end of all of this, I will have a bibliography. I'll pass it out and uh, I'll be answering questions. So uh, thank you for these past couple of weeks and uh, we'll see you later. Bye.
1: Great lecture. Good questions. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address talk talkback at com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there. Higher Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, and His vicarious death on the cross, penal substitutionary death for your sins and mine. Amen.